the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed, and good afternoon to you. Welcome to the Thursday, September 8th edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts, so privileged and happy to be with you again. And if you've been wondering, uh, gee, it sounds like you've ran a couple of uh, best dubs the past few days. What have you been up to, Roberts? Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, uh, let's lead off with the big news of the day. Uh, Of course, the um, nation of England mourning the loss of Queen Elizabeth. Reporter Mike Malkin is in London right now, where mourners have been gathering outside of Buckingham Palace following the news of the death of the Queen. A steady rain fell in London, seemingly the tears of a nation that had lost its soul. Thousands of British citizens gathered outside Buckingham Palace, clutching umbrellas, huddled against the drenching rain that swept across London. The official announcement of the Queen's death came in the early evening, after a day that saw members of the Royal family rushing to Balmoral Castle, the Queen's summer residence in Scotland, to be at Her Majesty's side. On Tuesday, Elizabeth met with Britain's newly elected Prime Minister Liz Truss. The Queen was said to be not feeling well. On Wednesday, British media reported her condition had worsened. Elizabeth ascended the throne in 1952 with the age of 25, after the sudden death of her father, King George VI. She's the only monarch most British citizens have ever known, the longest-serving monarch in the history of the nation. In London, I'm Mike Macklin. A remarkable life and remarkable legacy of Queen Elizabeth II. All right, turning the corner, let me, uh, now that I've kept you in suspense for a moment, let me answer your question as to where I have been. I revealed to you about this time, a little over a week ago, that I was recuperating from a bout of COVID-19. Yes, indeed, after all the efforts at uh, distancing and making sure I was wearing a mask in all public locations, washing my hands for 20 seconds, multiple times a day, doing all the good stuff that we're supposed to do. Nevertheless, I became exposed to it had a bout of COVID-19, recuperated from it, and two days after I had tested negative, I tested positive yet once again. So it's almost been a two-week, in fact, it has been a little over a two-week haul for me. And, you know, when we think about the impact of COVID-19 over the last, what, two-plus years, it has upended daily life for many of us. In some ways, the virus is under better control than it first was when we began to learn about this in March of 2020. Of course, since that time, COVID continues to remain a threat. No one can predict a new strain, when it might surface, how communicable it might be, and many questions related to COVID and when will this all, if ever, be over with, remain. 
The Omicron variant and subvariants have been driving infections. In June, one of these strains, called the BA5, became the prominent one across the United States. Now, while BA5 appears to cause mild disease, experts do believe it's one of the most contagious strains of the virus so far. What's more, it may be able to evade immunity from vaccination as well as prior infection. And, of course, there continues to be concerns over the impact of things that we don't fully understand yet, like so-called long COVID. To get some insights on all of this, we're joined once again by Professor John Schwartzberg. He is Clinical Professor Emeritus from UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy of the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and Chair of the Editorial Board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. And Professor Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Well, I, I... I feel I can speak with a bit more authority. I think when last we spoke, uh, I had not yet been through my COVID experience. Now I am here on the other side and and hopefully putting uh, the worst of all of this behind me. But I think it just goes back to the key point that I mentioned a moment ago, and I'd like to get your input on this, that there's still so much about COVID that we don't really understand. Well, first of all, Mr. Roberts, I'm just so happy that you're doing well now and so sorry you had to experience COVID like so many Americans and the worldwide people have. Um, Yes, there's a lot we've learned in two and a half years, um, but there's a tremendous amount more we need to learn. And we have to be humble about our knowledge. Uh, We know so much about infectious diseases because we've dealt with them for decades and sometimes centuries. So we've had years and years and years to study them. COVID, we've had, well, we've had two years and less than nine months. So... Um, lots to learn still. You know, when I think, and I'm glad you mentioned about the the, the sense of, of modern medicine's experience in dealing with infectious diseases, we think historically, and for many of this, this came about in our lifetime, where research was able to lead to vaccinations that for example, have practically wiped out the existence of polio, although in recent years we've seen a bit of a resurgence largely amongst those that, quite frankly, have, for whatever reason, chosen not to become vaccinated. But we've become accustomed to science being able to discover a vaccination and essentially wipe out many of these things. Childhood diseases such as smallpox, rubella, polio, as I mentioned. This one is a little bit different, and, and maybe this is why it's got so many people misunderstanding well, gee, I took a vaccination. Shouldn't that be enough? And why do I have to continue to be vigilant? And why do I have to continue to wear a face mask? And and why is it that science so far doesn't seem to have an answer? Give us some insights, if you would, in terms of what makes COVID so uniquely different than perhaps some of these other infectious diseases that I've referenced. Well, among the the big differences with COVID, the one that I think plays the biggest role to answer your question is that Unlike measles and polio, for example, you brought those up, they're pretty stable viruses, and our vaccines against them really have the same target to hit year after year and decade after decade. It's a moving target with the virus that causes COVID. It mutates, it changes on a regular basis, or actually, more realistically, on an irregular basis, it's unpredictable. And so what we develop when we develop a vaccine against the virus, it tries to move away from that as best it can. And so what we've seen is that 
with this new Omicron and its subvariants, you mentioned BA.5, we've seen that the vaccines we developed previously, while working still very, very well to prevent people from being hospitalized and dying, they don't work as well in terms of preventing people from getting infected and getting mild to moderate disease. And so that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing these infections in people who have been fully vaccinated, up to date with their vaccines, but we're seeing a lot of people get infections nevertheless. But the good news is that these vaccines continue to do what, frankly, their most important job is, preventing us from being hospitalized and dying. And maybe that's the important point that all of us need to understand. Uh, A friend of mine called when they learned that I had first come down with COVID and said, oh, my goodness, you of all people, I'm surprised you're not vaccinated. I said, oh, no, I'm, I'm not only fully vaccinated. My most recent booster shot was less than 60 days ago. So it isn't that there's been a failure necessarily on my part, although I'm inclined to think obviously somewhere I slipped up, somewhere I was in contact with somebody and I was not either properly socially distanced or wearing a face mask. So there was clearly some some risk that I took along the way here. But that said, to understand that unlike, as you've just mentioned, unlike other communicable diseases where we're able to find a vaccination that's able to essentially then give us uh, a, a, a sense of permanent protection. In the case of, of COVID, it almost seems to be a, how should I put this, a fairly intelligent, can I say that, or, or crafty um, uh, disease in the sense that once we come up with a means of protecting and, and, and creating the necessary antibodies within our own system to protect it following vaccination, it figures out a way of how to get around all of that. It certainly does appear to be cunning, doesn't it? But, you know, we've had experience with viruses like this before. Um, influenza, which visits us every year, December, January, February, and into March. It changes every year. That's why we need a new flu shot every year. So influenza is similar to COVID in that way, except the virus that causes COVID, it changes or mutates four times more than influenza does. It's a real formidable foe. That's not to say that we're not going to figure it out, though. I'm, I'm really very confident that, given enough time, we're going to come up with vaccines that are going to be able to take care of however this virus changes. And I'm encouraged to hear you say that, and I want to kind of sort of peel back the layers of the onion and go a bit deeper when we come back after the break because people do, I think, need to be reminded that there was a time in this country in the, on this planet when something that we kind of take almost casually, like influenza, uh, was a fairly considered to be fairly fatal disease. And as we know, in the 1918-1919 the, uh, flu pandemic, uh, it, it wiped out literally millions of people, both across the United States and in Europe. Now, of course, we look at it as something that we know come the fall, it's time to get our influenza shot. When we reach a certain age, we want the additional protection. Younger people can usually ride it out, but we figured out how to to kind of get ahead of the curve, and even though it mutates enough that it requires a fresh shot every year, we're able to stay ahead of it. Now, that wasn't the case a century ago. Now, hopefully it won't take a century <laughs> to figure out COVID, but but I think I find it encouraging, Professor Schwartzberg, that, that 
you're encouraged that the more we study, the more we learn as more time passes, we're going to get a chance to kind of get out ahead of this and, and hopefully be able to someday corral COVID in the same fashion the way we have influenza. We see it coming. We're able to create the necessary vaccine, vaccinations in order to protect uh, the population, and it's no, no longer the threat that it remains to this day. Professor John Schwartzberg is with us, clinical professor emeritus from UC Berkeley, professor emeriti academy of the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. We are talking about COVID-19, the most recent strain, the way it continues to morph, and most importantly, I hope that everyone listening can, can learn some lessons from me that in every way in which you can take steps to protect yourself and remain vigilant, um, that's going to certainly help increase the chances of you never getting sick with COVID. I consider myself very fortunate to be here, that it was relatively, comparatively speaking to what it could have been, a mild experience, even though I had the the, the so-called COVID rebound uh, after having tested clean for two days, and yet never dealt with any severe uh, respiratory infection of any sort. And um, again, I'm very grateful. Would I ever want to repeat this experience? Oh, my goodness, no. Are the things that all of us can and should be doing to protect ourselves and our families? Well, we're going to talk more about that, along with gaining some more understanding about the way COVID works and what's going to be necessary for modern science to get out ahead of it. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the discussion. Professor John Schwartzberg is with us, clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley, professor of the Emeriti Academy, School of Public Health, the Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, where he serves as chair of the editorial board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. We're talking about an old enemy, COVID-19, which I think for a season, once it was first announced that the vaccinations would become available, a lot of us breathed a collective sigh of relief. We thought, aha, just go and get the jab. We can get protected from this, and COVID will be just a distant memory. But as we're learning, this is a bit of a, um, a crafty and a clever infectious disease that is figuring out how to work around our vaccinations. But with all of that said, and this is the important point, I think, Professor Schwartzberg, that, that I would like to have you shed some light on. Some people, I think, erroneously draw the conclusion because they're so used to the sense of we get a shot, we're good to go, not to worry, that people believe, well, if it is this crafty and this capable of working around the vaccinations, then I'm just becoming a human pincushion. Why even bother? Speak to that, if you would. Sure. I certainly, first of all, understand how people can feel that way. It's, it, it has been frustrating to not have one vaccine that can just knock this out. We did have very high hopes um, roughly a, li- a little over two years ago when the vaccines were first uh, being talked about and then released in December of 21, excuse me, 20. But um as you said, they haven't just quite turned out that way. So why do I have high hopes? Well, if you think about it, typically it takes on average anywhere from 8 to 12 to 14 years to develop a new vaccine. In the history of all the vaccines we've developed, 
Uh, this goes back well over a century and oh, century plus, clearly, and and that's excluding the vaccine against smallpox. The fastest we ever developed a vaccine was against mumps, and that was around six years. So it takes a long time to develop a vaccine. We started to work on this vaccine in January of 2020 when we first heard about the virus in China, and then there was rumblings about the possibility of it being here. In less than 12 months, we had a vaccine that would protect against hospitalization and death, and actually it protected us very well against even getting sick early on before the virus changed. That was, in the history of medicine, nothing like that has ever been achieved, ever. So that's why I'm confident that with putting our efforts into this, putting the, the science that we have and the really wonderful people that we have working on this problem, I do think while it's a tough nut, I think it's a crackable one. And I think I'm not talking about decades from now, I'm talking about maybe a few years from now, maybe even less than that. So we'll, we're definitely gonna get there. There's some exciting work about developing what we call a pan-coronavirus vaccine, meaning that it would cover any new strain that this virus throws at us. There's exciting work about developing a pan-influenza vaccine, meaning that we wouldn't need shots every year against influenza because we develop a vaccine that could cover anything that influenza threw against us. And I'm curious, let me interrupt because I'm, I'm fascinated about something here then. So uh, as we see each strain morph into something slightly different. From the layman's standpoint, we might think, boy, this thing is clever and crafty, and it's always going to be two steps ahead of us. But I'm wondering if, as we see multiple variations in in such rapid succession, as essentially we've experienced with, with COVID, where there's been uh, probably uh, easily a half a dozen or more variants in just two years, do we begin, does science begin to see a bit of a pattern that is taking place that then would allow us to kind of get ahead of it and anticipate, okay, uh, under certain circumstances, it morphs in this fashion or that fashion, and therefore be able to get ahead of the curve and, as you suggest, create a, a pan-vaccination that would, in, in a sense, give us the ability to kind of anticipate in advance where it might be headed? Yeah, science right now can't tell us how this virus is going to change. It's still a step ahead of us in that regard. But the one thing it does tell us and this is the encouraging thing, is there are certain parts of the virus that don't change, that never change. And that must be because those are critical parts to the virus that they, it needs for its own survival. Mm. So it never changes. And that's one of the targets that we're aiming at right now. Not the part that changes. That's a tough, that's, that's, that's really too problematic, but there are parts that don't change. And that may be the way we can get away around this very difficult problem. So there is markers, so to speak, that demonstrate consistency across all of the variants. And if I'm understanding correctly, Professor Schwartzberg, that's essentially looking at that commonality across all the variants and then drawing the conclusion as to what seems to be the, the, the consistent aspect of it that is kind of at the very root or base of the virus, that were you able to interrupt that, for want of a better term, you would effectively then render the virus harmless. In, in a layman's sense, did I kind of get that right? Perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And that's one of the avenues that of really intense intellectual pursuit right now. 
And that's not the only one. There's several others that are all very exciting. Now, let me touch on a couple of other issues here. I talked to a colleague yesterday, and they were not aware that I had been sick, so we kind of, you know, traded war stories. And at the end of the conclusion of the conversation, this colleague said, well, that's, you know, not, not to worry. I've been through this four times already. I, I heard that, and I was horrified, thinking my short experience with COVID and then COVID rebound two days after I had tested clear it was upsetting enough. Uh, I'm, I'm not the type that likes to be <laughs> sitting at home in bed all day long by a long shot. I, I don't make a good patient. <laughs> But that said, I heard this person say, oh, yeah, I've been down this road four times. And one of the things that we don't understand, and maybe you can touch on this, and it's even now that I am you know, a COVID patient, so to speak, of a concern to me, and that is that as much as science is working on trying to understand the behavior of the virus and the way it morphs and multiplies, there's also a lot of research going into the potential impact of the virus long term or in more perhaps common terms so-called long covid where we really don't know and we won't perhaps uh, professor schwarzberg for years to come what does this do to the system is it is it simply ignored we hear people talk about Bain, brain frog, uh, fog. We've heard talks about potential impact on the cardiovascular system, things of this sort. Speak, if you would, to your understanding in relationship to the impact of COVID that might be yet a long reach that maybe only time is certainly going to tell that should say to the person who's never been vaccinated and just feels as if, well, if I get COVID, no big deal. I've been through it before. I'll get through it again. If we add layer upon layer, does that begin to to increase other types of risks apart from the immediate illness related to COVID? Unfortunately, it does. And I, like you, really am horrified to hear that your friends had it four times because each time you get COVID, you have a risk of getting long COVID. And having had it once and not developing long COVID doesn't mean the second time you won't get it. We've, we now have very good data to show that each time you get COVID, you increase your risk of long COVID. So you're really playing with fire when you keep repeatedly getting infected. We don't know how often long COVID occurs. We think that um, a conservative number is about one out of every 20 people who gets COVID. A, a more uh, negative number that uh, where we have some data for suggests it's closer to one out of 15 or one out of 20. Excuse me. Yeah, one out of 15, maybe one out of even 10. So the, it, the bottom line is when you multiply one out of 10, for example, or one out of five or one out of 20 by the, the millions of people who have had COVID, you're talking about a big number of people who are going to have some long-term suffering. And that is really tragic. You know, I don't really worry terribly about if I don't want to get COVID, just like you were saying, I don't want to get it and be laid up for a while and being miserable for a while. But I don't any longer really worry that I'm going to die if I get COVID or even be hospitalized. I'm up to date with my vaccines. And if I do get sick, I have access to medication that really helps prevent hospitalization and death. What I still worry about if I get COVID is I don't want to get long COVID. I don't want to be laid up for months and maybe longer. 
And it's almost in a sense then, and we'll, we can pick this conversation up um, in our final segment on the other side of the break, but it is in a sense almost like uh, playing Russian roulette, is it not? I mean, it's one thing to say, yeah, you know, I kind of drove recklessly on the freeway and I got into a car accident, but the airbags deployed, I had my seatbelt on, no big deal, I, I walked away from the crash, no problem. That's still not an experience you probably want to repeat every few years because every time you get into a high-speed automobile accident, you, you increase the risk that maybe this time the seatbelt won't hold or the airbag won't deploy. And even though you've kind of come through previous accidents unscathed, you never know when your turn might come. And I would imagine then, as you're suggesting, I think, Professor Schwartzberg, there's sort of a, an exponential increase of the risk factor that once we go through COVID, if we are to go through it again and possibly again, and as my colleague, four times over, that each time you're you're multiplying the potential risk of long COVID that, that attends to many other potential long-term maladies that we don't really fully understand, but seem to be a risk not worth taking. Absolutely right. Um, I wish it was the case. I wish you could say, well, I, I had COVID. I didn't get long COVID. So if I get it in, I won't get long COVID. That's just not the case. All right. I want to take a time out. When we come back, this is going to be time to take some important notes. Because as I've revealed to you, I came down with COVID a little over two weeks ago, my, my initial symptoms, went on Paxlovid. At the end of the five days, tested negative, gleefully, even came back to work for all of two days, and then experienced COVID rebound. And I'm, I'm just two days on the other side of, of testing negative again. So what are the steps that we should continue to take? What should our appropriate attitude be as it relates to dealing with COVID? And we're going to dispel some myths out there, some wives' tales that I think it's, it's time to lay bare because at the end of the day, you're playing with your health. And that's just something you don't want to play Russian roulette with. Professor John Schwartzberg is with us this evening, clinical professor emeritus UC Berkeley, professor emeriti academy of the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, chair of the editorial board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. Always a privilege to have Professor Schwartzberg with us. We're going to get more important insights as our conversation continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Final segment in our conversation this evening with Professor John Schwartzberg. He, of course, is the clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley Professor Emeriti Academy, the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and chair of the editorial board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publications. We are talking about not just my own bout with COVID, but the, the broader lessons that all of us can learn. And, and one of the important points, um, Professor Schwartzberg, that I want to have you touch on is dispelling some of the myths. Uh, one, and I think you've already done a pretty adequate job of doing that, and that is the sense that, well, if I get it, I've had it before, getting it again is no big deal. You know, I'm laid up for a week or so. It's just like a bad cold uh, when, in fact, the long-term potential impact of so-called long COVID is just something we simply don't know about. The other thing that I'd like to have you speak to, if you would, and that is some of the wives' tales. For example, 
just here barely three weeks ago, uh, August 17th edition of the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, a research paper was released. They had, over the course of a year, studied uh, almost 1,400 patients looking at some of these so-called alternative treatments to COVID, uh, such things as metformin, which is typically used to deal with uh, high blood sugars, uh, fluvaxamine, and uh, one of the, the highly touted so-called cures for COVID, ivermectin. The study found that there was no appreciable improvement of COVID patients having taken any of these three so-called remedies. And I know some people out there have really gone to school and have insisted, oh, I took it and I felt so much better. It, to me, it, it seems the equivalent of, well, if you're feeling a little run down, you must not have enough iron in your, in your system. My great-great-grandmother used to say, go out to the fence, pull a rusty nail out of the fence, boil it in, in, a, in, in a pot of water, and make a tea out of that, and that'll replenish your, your low iron count. Speak, if you would, to some of these sort of, I'll call them wives' tales, as it's related to dealing with COVID. And if you would, shed some light on how people need to continue to be vigilant in dealing with both receiving vaccines and protecting themselves. Sure. You know, um, anecdotes are very powerful. When we hear a story of somebody who did something and they got better, that that creates a, a big impression on all of us. And there are lots of anecdotes about what people have done to get better with COVID, including a lot of supplements, including some of the drugs that you were mentioning, including some other things. And how do we really know if they work or not? And the only way to find that out is to study them. And the way you study them is to eliminate all bias. Say, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We'll give this, we'll give this group of people the actual supplement or medicine or whatever, and we'll give this group of people a placebo, sugar pill. And I won't know who gets which until we break the code at the end of the study. And when we do that, when we put all of these ideas, these anecdotes that we've been hearing about for the last two and a half years to treat COVID, when we put them to this test, unfortunately, we haven't found any of these to be effective. And I know there are people who just swear about different things. We saw all of the fuss about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, two drugs and when they, they've been subjected to rigorous trials, they're no better than a placebo, and sometimes they have more side effects than the sugar pill. So we need, to, we need to understand not what we want to believe, but we need to understand what the truth is. And the only thing that, way we can get that answer is by really studying them very carefully. So my plea to everybody who's listening is make sure that anything you're putting in your body, it's been really rigorously studied to make sure it's not only safe, but also effective. You know, vitamin D has received a lot of publicity lately um, about not only making it, uh, helping you get better from COVID faster or preventing COVID, but for treating common colds and so on. Well. We have study after study after study from independent groups who have looked at vitamin D and found that it does none of these things. And just yesterday, there was a large study published from Europe 
that showed the same thing for influenza and the common cold and a few other infections where it did nothing. So I know we'd like to have things that will act like a miracle for us, but that's not the way the real world works. And finally, Professor Schwartzberg, and I, and I hear this with some frequency, too. People say, well, it's just Big Pharma. Big Pharma wants to keep all of these special secrets hidden because if it gets out that something as simple as, for example, vitamin D uh, can prevent uh, contracting COVID, that they would lose billions of dollars in research money and in the sale of pharmaceuticals. I, you know, I, I hear that and I think, you know, it, that, that tends to kind of be the equivalent of the boogeyman is hiding underneath my bed, at least in, in my estimation. I mean, you know, there's no doubt that pharmaceutical companies are in this to make money, aren't we all? And at the end of the day, uh, life is so much better for millions of people across the planet because of the existence of Big Pharma. So speak to that, if you would, please. Sure. You know, there, there are a, a lot of very legitimate criticisms that can be thrown at Big Pharma. Very legitimate. But that doesn't mean that that, that you should therefore go ahead and take things that aren't demonstrated to be safe and effective, that have been relegated to impartial, careful trials to determine whether they're safe and effective. The two have really nothing to do with each other. And I think that this is just one of the canards that is often thrown up by people who have a vested interest in something. For example, a lot of the supplements that are made, these aren't by big pharma. These are by people out there creating these concoctions and making just outrageous claims and raking in millions and millions of dollars. So be careful. It's, um, you know, that old adage about caveat emptor. You have to be careful. Yeah, and that's such an important point because um, there, there's even so-called uh, radio talk show hosts that have been out there uh, just bashing the vaccinations right and left and, oh, it's going to magnetize you. They're putting tracking devices in your system <laughs> as if as if, if the government doesn't know where we are right now anyway. If you carry a so cell phone, believe me, they know where you are. But that said, isn't it ironic? But the very people that so often will create such a boogeyman out of big pharma, and I'm sure some people listening right now are saying, oh, Craig must be getting paid by Big Pharma. But isn't it ironic that the very people that sometimes voice the highest criticism are, in fact, off to the side, making tons of money selling so-called alternative medicine, none of which has been trial tested, none of which has been approved by the FDA, and most of which is probably no more effective than popping a couple of sugar pills? Yes, you're right. And I think, you know, if you follow the money, that old expression, um, uh, that's going to affirm exactly what you said. At the end of the day, Professor Schwartzberg, we have to continue to stay vigilant, continue to keep current with our vaccinations, and um, and remain hopeful that, as you indicate, um, medical science is learning more. And if they can get down to really understanding the commonality amongst all of these different variants of COVID-19, trust home Soon, one day, a vaccination will come along that will deal with it across the board, and we can finally put this collective horrific experience behind all of us. Absolutely.
Professor John Schwartzberg, we appreciate so much your time and your insights. And uh, again, thank you so much for being with us. Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy, the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology, and also Chair of the Editorial Board, UC Berkeley Health and Wellness Publication. We thank you so much again, Professor Schwartzberg, for your time. Let's get a quick uh, time out here. We'll be back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's true. I'm pregnant. My parents will kill me. My boyfriend said, get rid of it or I'm gone. I don't have health insurance. We used protection. I was told to have an abortion. Every day, many Bay Area women face life-altering decisions. Real Options Clinics help turn the unplanned into a loving plan. Join Real Options for an evening filled with hope and inspiration for their 41st Ignite Life Benefit in person or online, Saturday, November 5th, starting at 5.30 p.m. Register at friendsofrealoptions.net. Boy, you hear all the excuses that people have to face, and it's real challenges in related to unplanned pregnancies. And, of course, as we've seen this paradigm shift across the country with many states severely restricting access to abortion, others, sadly, like our own, have opened the gates wider and wider and wider. But still, there are victims Still, there are millions of lives that are impacted, and it's not just certainly the child who, through an abortion, of course, gets impacted (laughs) the most 100% of the time, but there are mothers involved, and let's not forget there's also a father involved in the process. So what to do? How can we help better educate so that there is a more realistic approach to the totality of options related to an unplanned pregnancy that goes beyond just the simple mantra of pregnant, don't want it, have an abortion? Well, to join me with some insights, we've got Dale McGowan. Dale is Director of Ministry Advancement with Real Options. And Dale, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Men, of course, are 50% of the equation, uh, although if you listen to the mantra from the the um, uh, abortion providers out there, you would hardly know it. Um, and yet they play an important role, obviously, but beyond that, also can and should play a larger role in relationship to the decision that a woman makes. Give us some insights in terms of what that role should look like. And and when you talk about coaching men to have a better understanding and to become more responsible, what exactly does that mean? Uh, well, thank you, Craig. Uh, nice to be here with you tonight. Uh, let me begin kind of with an overview of what an optimal health coach does in our real options clinics. In addition to working with women who come to us with unplanned pregnancies, we also work with fathers of the preborn to help them improve their health in a variety of domains such as uh, effective communication, learning progressive steps of intimacy, and learning how to set healthy boundaries. When men develop these healthy domains, they can achieve optimal health, and that really is our goal. And when you talk about optimal health, I mean, obviously, that's got to go to physical, but I would imagine there's also a spiritual dynamic in there, a relational dynamic. Give us a bit of a sense or an example, maybe, if you can, Dale, in terms of what these different aspects look like and how that all plays out in a practical fashion. Sure. 
Uh, in the area of communication, as I mentioned up above, we've learned that it is critical to be a good listener in order to have the Father share his heart. The first part of James 1.19 reads, Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Our optimal health coaches are trained to listen to the Father's story and to be slow in asking questions or giving advice. Uh, it's really easy for us as optimal health coaches to want to share information right off the bat to help him make the decision about his unborn child, but this can actually be counterproductive. If we do what is commonly called reflective listening, it makes it more likely for the man to continue sharing in depth. Otherwise, we, we may miss critical information. So after listening, I might reflect back, so you seem very upset about what to do regarding your girlfriend's pregnancy. The father might uh, share the following. On one hand, I know it's a baby, but I just know we're not ready to be parents. Uh, Craig, real options, optimal health coaches develop good listening skills, which can be taught also to the fathers, which helps him in his relationship with the mother of his child. And, and, you know, that's so critically important because oftentimes, uh, certainly this is not true always, but oftentimes uh, one or more of the parents maybe come from a broken home. They perhaps have never had the benefit of role modeling. They, they don't have an intact family. And, and now they find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy. They may or may not even be married. This might even be a, a, a fairly young relationship. And yet suddenly now... These two people, the mother and father, uh, have in common this new life and their degrees of, of accountability and responsibility that, that need to be looked at that I guess in a lot of ways uh, really overwhelm men and, and particularly as I say, if maybe they've been in a circumstance raising or growing up as, as a child themselves where they don't really know what their responsibility ought to be or how they ought to be playing an active role in helping through this process. Well, yes, and one of the things you bring up leads me to think about uh, men who have had come from uh, difficult backgrounds. Commonly, their self-esteem is um, much to be desired. And so one of the things we try to do uh, in developing all of these uh, areas of, of improving their uh, health uh, is, is helping them to make uh, more confident uh, comments to their partners about what they want to do uh, with the child themselves. Because in so many ways, uh, it's commonly to hear from the father whatever she wants, kind of abdicating their responsibility toward the future of their sons or daughters. And we here at Real Options want to change that. And, you know, I'm glad you point that out because that's so critically important. And, and in that moment when both members of the couple are are experiencing an enormous amount of, of confusion and fear and indecision. And maybe some men erroneously think, well, if you just say, hey, whatever you want, they think they're being empowering by saying that. They think they're giving, you know, a deferential, not preferential, differential treatment to, to the girlfriend, the wife, the spouse, the partner, not recognizing that, no, when, when they hear that, they don't hear support. They hear abdicating of all responsibility, and suddenly it's the, the entire decision-making process and the weight of same is 100% on the shoulders of the woman. And, boy, that's dangerous. 
Yeah, and one of the things that we find out just looking at things through surveys is that the man, the father of the baby, is the most important factor in a woman's decision about the child that is within her. So ultimately then, Dale, how can our audience, how can our listeners help with this issue of fathers of the preborn? Well, they obviously can contact me because we are currently looking for men in the Christian community who feel called to help fathers in these life domains we just mentioned. Are you a man who recognizes the importance of being a good listener and is open to being trained to help fathers? Actually, on this coming September 24th, we're hosting an informational meeting for potential male optimal health coach volunteers. And you can learn more about this by calling me at dale at realoptions.net. And, you know, this is so critically important because at the end of the day, it's a mentoring opportunity for young men who are themselves dealing with a multiplicity of challenges, perhaps, not coming from a solid support background, perhaps. And so here's a chance for a man to be able to um, provide some wisdom, some insight, some support, and some mentoring. If you'd like to find out more about uh, hosting, as we mentioned, this informational meeting on September the 24th regarding optimal health coach volunteers specifically for men reach out to dale you can simply email him dale d-a-l-e dale at realoptions.net that's dale at realoptions.net dale mcgowan director of ministry advancement with real options we appreciate so much your time today three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com